From Verge headquarters in Indianapolis, I'm Matt Hunkler with Powder Keg Igniting Startups. And hello, my Powder Keggers and Powder Keg fans. I'm taking a little bit of a break from the holiday celebrations this week to bring you an amazing conversation with a serial entrepreneur whose marketing strategies have allowed his 40-person tech company to compete in an industry that's dominated by Goliaths like Google and Yahoo. So, but the really non-intuitive piece is that the companies that are really successful found underutilized strategies within that channel. And the only way they can do that is by creatively testing, using their testing resources to test within that channel. That's Gabriel Weinberg, serial entrepreneur and founder of DuckDuckGo. Weinberg is the author of the book Traction, A Startup Guide to Getting Customers. And it's one of my favorite books. I reference it frequently. And it's actually become a little bit of a field manual, so to speak, for tech entrepreneurs growth hackers, and marketers around the world. I mean, the framework has been used by founders like Jimmy Wales of Wikipedia, Alexis Ohanian of Reddit, and Paul English of Kayak.com. And they've used these strategies to build some of the biggest companies and organizations in the world. That's coming up on Powder Keg, Igniting Startups, where every week we are sharing the untold stories of innovation, leadership, and technology beyond Silicon Valley. This episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town. When we launched this podcast a few weeks ago, we weren't even going to take on a sponsor. But given what Developer Town does and what they've been able to do with other startups and large-scale companies, it was sort of a no-brainer for us as we were looking to launch this podcast. Developer Town helps companies turn great ideas into products with traction. Just take Tim Forrester, for example. He is at a water consulting firm out of Illinois called BWCSI. And a few years ago, they had an idea. The application we built, I mean, we just kind of whipped it up in our spare time. Like, it kind of became a major initiative, but it was it was impressive how much of a need there was in the market. And it's like, wow, okay. I think that's what was enticing the developer town when we approached them was, hey, listen, the idea is legit because we've already sold in the, in the mid to high six figures worth of the software. But we just encountered a problem where what we were doing was essentially custom to redesigning it every time for each client there's got to be there's got to be a better way to do this both both on the technology front but also primarily on the business front i mean we, we kind of between the developer and myself we kind of sat back and said you know what this the way we're doing this is not the way that great software is built and to be real honest, we don't know how great software is built. I mean, we, we may know, you know, the technicalities of how to build software, but we don't, we've never run a software business. We've never started a software company. So we kind of realized, like, if this is ever going to be more than a side project, if we ever really want to launch this, it's got to be done the right way. And it's probably got to be in the cloud and it probably has to be rebuilt from scratch. Just kind of reimagined. Now that we really understand all the needs, all the pitfalls, we should start from scratch knowing all these things and re-architect it from the ground up. So we were like, we need to partner with somebody who's done this before and who understands this business, who under who can show us the business of starting a software company. Long story, but we ended up uh, hooking up with Developer Town and the rest is history. For the rest of this story, visit developertown.com slash powder keg. Developer Town is one word, powder keg is one word. So again, that's developertown.com slash powder keg for more information. Developer Town, start something. Gabriel Weinberg is the founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo, an internet search engine that doesn't track you or your personal data. 
In an industry that's dominated by Goliaths like Google and Yahoo, DuckDuckGo does more than 3 billion searches per year. You can find Gabriel on the Twitters at Yeg, that's at Y-E-G-G, but he's also a prolific writer on the popular blogging platform Medium. Uh, He's also fairly active on AngelList with more than a dozen investments that he's made into some of these innovation-driven companies. And on both of those platforms, he again is at Yeg, Y-E-G-G. This conversation with Weinberg is a masterclass on getting more customers for your business or idea. Today, I talked to Gabriel about the best strategies from his book, Traction, A Startup Guide to Getting Customers. We dive into why he decided to compete against big companies like Google, how he gained traction as a search engine, and why he's growing his tech company from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We don't want to waste any time getting into it, and I I know that there's so much goodness in this interview, so it's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Traction himself, Mr. Gabriel Weinberg. Matt Hunkler here, and I'm with Gabriel Weinberg, who is the co-founder of DuckDuckGo and author of the amazing book, Traction. Gabriel, thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, Dude, I'm so stoked because you and I connected a couple weeks ago in Philadelphia, which there's an awesome startup community there in Philly, uh, and you have grown an amazing company that has gotten beyond traction uh, in, in such a magnificent sort of way. Uh, I'd love it if you could kind of talk about the initial idea conception of DuckDuckGo. What what was the problem that you were trying to solve and how did you know when you had finally reached traction? My story is weird, a little weird. It may not be directly applicable to everybody, but what happened was, is I had a previous company that I sold uh, in 2006 and I didn't particularly like that product very much. Like it wasn't, I wasn't interested in it. Um, it's one of the reasons why we sold it. So I, I realized that whatever I want to do next, I want to do for a long time, like, or, or be able to do for a long time because I was interested in it, like a decade kind of thing. When I brainstormed what that might be, I found, at least for myself, a very hard time assessing like that founder market fit, they might call, you know? Yeah. So I, I literally started a bunch of side projects, like, like a dozen, like a lot of different things. This is in a two-year period, really, 2006, 2008. And I, I tried a lot of different things and uh, what I thought might work and just what I was interested in. They weren't necessarily business ideas either, just, you know, things. Really? Okay. Um, Can you give yeah. a, like an so, example of, of maybe one that wasn't DuckDuckGo? Yeah, interview show I started, um, uh, more like a TV kind of thing, even physical TV. I started a competitor at a meetup.com called Cryptomatic. Um, I'm bummed that d- that one didn't work out. I would probably would have used it. I, well, I, I, a lot of these were started out of frustration. Like I moved to Philadelphia and I was a little frustrated with the meetup experience. So I was like, I'm just going to mess with my own, you know? But then three of these projects ended up being search related. Two of them were improving my own Google results, which I was kind of dissatisfied at the time. It was 2007, removing spam and content farms and also adding instant answers at the top. Like I would kept going to Wikipedia and IMDb and I was like, why do I have to click on the links, you know? Um, and the third was this idea that uh, random people in their head had better links in a lot of cases than Google. Like if I ask you, like, what are the best startup blogs? You had a better answer in 2007, or at least I did, than what Google was returning. Um, and that happened in a lot of categories. So anyway, I started these different side projects and a year into them or so, 
you know, I, I took a step back and said, okay, which ones am I really interested in? And the, the ones I was really attracted to were like data, algorithms, that kind of stuff. And so I said, okay, well, a bunch of these are related. I'll Maybe I'll try a search engine. At, at that point of consolidation, I was still doing several projects, but I decided to launch some of them. And so I launched DuckDuckGo in a not real launch, like I launched it to Hacker News, just to see if there was like any demand there at all. Um, so if there wasn't demand, I probably would have stopped and did something else. But there there was some demand. And so, and I was excited by it. Um, so I just kept going. I mean, that's basically how it started. So it, it really all came out of launching it on Hacker News and saying, hey, I created this thing. What do you think? Yeah, the thread is, is still up. I mean, you can, you can go check it out. It was a, at, it was called Startup News back then. And it was supposed to like, ask YC, um, what do you think of my new search engine? That's awesome. Uh, it's well at the time. And, and if you read the thread, what you can see is, you know, there are some people who were starting to get either dissatisfied with Google results like I was, or just like interested in something new because it had been a kind of monopoly for a while. Um, and so there was clearly like an early adopter crowd there. Was there something particular that you did with that thread that you think got a lot of people to comment on it? Or was it literally just, hey, check this out, here's a link? That one was literally checked it out, here, here's a link. But the community was way smaller at the time. And I was a decently prominent member of it at the time. Like I was in the top 100, that kind of stuff. So like, I think people knew who I was. And so you could say I pre-invested in the community. But it, it wasn't like a launch plan in the sense of like, I was trying to get a lot of traction from it. It was more like a feedback plan. Uh, I'm in this community. I, I want to see what happens, you know, if anyone will really use this. Yeah, so you've, you've literally co-authored the book on traction now. That word is used all throughout the startup community. And even now in, in some of the non-startup communities and, and business communities, is there a specific moment when you have reached traction? Like, is that something that you've actually defined as, hey, this is when you have traction, but anything before that, it's not traction? You know, our advice is whatever you're doing, you should define an explicit traction goal, really a hard number of what you're trying to hit. Like when you're starting out, it's usually one of three things. It's usually, you know, how much traction you need to raise money or how much traction you need to be profitable or, you know, spin off a certain amount of cash for you or how much traction you need to prove to yourself that this is like a project worth pursuing, which was my case starting to go. I think that that traction goal is usually defined as an inflection point in your company. And so beginning, that's one of those three things usually. Later on, it could be like you've reached sustainability or you have some kind of market share number, some kind of inflection point. So I think when thinking about it, I like to frame it as a specific point that you're trying to reach and saying, okay, well, now I've achieved that goal. That said, I think you can say I have traction, I don't have traction based on at the very early stages based on um, sustainable product engagement. And this gets to the question of whether you should pivot or not, which a lot of people ask. I mean, when people ask that, the first thing I ask is, well, okay, do you have any users that are like hyper engaged in your product? Like they're, they're like really engaged. I would call them like bright spots, you know, like you can look at part of your user base and say, okay, those people like really get it. Even a small amount of those people is a little bit of traction that I think you can build on because you can say like, okay, are those people outliers? Is there a market there? Maybe there's a niche I can expand on. If you don't have any engaged users, then I would say you have no traction <laughs> and, and maybe you should consider pivoting or if you haven't tweaked your product much, maybe you need to tweak the product or the messaging. Um, so I do think there is a binary point, but I think that binary point is more around pivoting and less around what people normally mean, which is 
I have enough traction to raise money or, you know, or, or do something significant in the market. So, so in order to get to that point where you can do something significant, whether that's raise capital or find that next big um, client or even that next big uh, hire for the team, how do you get to that point of traction? Like, are there some core principles that you outline in the book that you can actually walk us through here? Or are there a couple of key pieces for finding those first couple bright points, as you call them, or bright spots? Yeah. So in the, in the book, you know, we, we present a framework called the bullseye framework. The idea is you hit the bullseye by finding the one traction channel that will get you to your goal. And there are 19 of these different marketing channels. So like SEO and um, AdWords and, you know, speaking engagements and trade shows. And there's literally 19 that we identified. That's like the universe of things you can do to get traction. But we found that generally when a startup is taking off, it's one of those that is a core strategy that is working. Now there might be other channels that feed into that core strategy, but they're really focusing on like one thing, be it like viral marketing or email marketing or content marketing. Um, and the goal is to really, with the framework, is to figure out which of those channels to do. You know, we really advise, because you don't really know which channel it is, you got to have some structured approach to figuring out what channel that is. It could be our approach, but you should take some structured approach. Whereas what normally people do is they just kind of stab around, try a few things, and then kind of give up. Our approach really is very simple, is you brainstorm all 19 channels because you don't really know which one is going to be successful. You try to think of tests you can run, and we offer a bunch of the book. Um, and then you pick your top three tests, the things that you think might be most likely to work. And then you run them in parallel. And they should take no longer than a month to really get some basic data on. Um, and then if one of those is successful, you double down and focus on that as your core strategy. And then you focus on figuring out how to make that strategy get to your goal. If none of them work, then you, you basically rerun the thing, like make sure your new brainstorm is still accurate, run some more tests, and then hopefully come up with a channel that works. So I'm assuming this is a strategy that worked for you at DuckDuckGo. Could you maybe talk us through what that process looked like for you? Yeah, so we have run this, we're on the sixth iteration of this. We're actually in the middle of the sixth iteration. So we've switched channels. Uh, this will be our sixth time switching. So we started with SEO, then content marketing, first in a blog form and then in microsites. Then we switched to social ads, uh, mainly Reddit. Uh, some 4chan. Then we switched to PR, first online, then print, then TV. And then we switched to business development partnerships, uh, which culminated in um, getting into the iPhone. DuckDuckGo is like a option in the iPhone and also Mozilla Firefox. And now we're literally rerunning this entire thing again with a new traction goal and new experiments. And that's kind of important because um, like our new goal, we do about 3 billion searches a year now. It is incredible, but it's also a hard problem because to grow now, we need to do like find another 3 billion searches next year. And so like, where do we find that? Those kind of numbers, like everything that worked before in those five iterations, no longer work. So like all the, all tests have to be new at that new scale. What were some of those earlier ones that worked then, but aren't working now just out of curiosity? Yeah. So, so uh, they're very good. So like. We could get a, for as a great example, last week, we kind of randomly were on the top of Reddit for the entire day. I did the same for the book, and in it, someone asked me about DuckDuckGo and if it was making money, and I said it was profitable, um, which we had said before around, but no, it wasn't as visible. Somebody picked that up and made a press story about it, 
someone posted that to, to Reddit and it got way voted up. It had like has like 7,000 points and it stayed at the top of Reddit, like Reddit all for an entire day. So like that's the best content marketing you could probably get. It did not move our traffic numbers at all. You could not even see a blip. And that would, three years ago, that would have been amazing. You know, that would have actually moved the needle, but now it does not. So that it doesn't move the needle now. So how are you designing the test now going forward? And how do you find and ideate those different 19 or nine or 29 uh, different ideas to then pick the, the, the five that you go for? You know, is there a particular number of those uh, that, that you need to pick down and go forward? So first of all, how do you get the number that you pick from? And then how do you decide how many you can actually go after? The 19 is pretty, we may try to be pretty exhaustive of everything. So that's like the universe. We recommend, and from our experience, you know, only doing about three at a time because it's just, you can't do them very well <laughs> if you do more. You really have to go through them until you find something that works though. <laughs> um, and that made me run a lot of tests. It made me change your product or messaging over time if nothing's working, but you gotta keep running tests basically until you, until you find something that works. Um, in our experience, in the past, we had to run probably on the order of six before we, we hit something. This problem we have now at this scale has been the hardest one. When you're really small, when you're first starting out, like a lot of people, the tests are much simpler, and we give examples in the book of one to three you can run in every channel. And the reason for that is very simple. Like when you're starting out, often you only need a few customers. And this is one thing people overlook. For example, speaking engagements often are an excellent channel for anyone starting out. Like if you go and speak in front of some place, the right audience, even in your local area, that might get you your first few customers. Most people overlook that completely because you know it's out of sight, out of mind, or they don't want public speaking or, or whatever. But that, that's like a great channel to test for early people. Like right now, that won't work at all for us. And so right now, what we're doing is we have to design completely different tests. So like one test we ran relatively recently was a billboard test where we uh, put up some billboards in different cities. Um, and we, we saw whether there was any lift in those cities over time, um, essentially. And so now we're looking for doing a relatively localized, but experiment enough that we can see some uplift and then measure what that uplift would be and see if that would actually could result in 3 million searches if we scale it. Um, our other challenge for us, and th this goes to other people when they get farther along, is cost per acquisition. So when you're starting out, you're only looking for 10 customers. Even if you're only going to make $5 off of them, you don't care if it costs you $500 to get them often because you're just, you're trying to get those first customers. But for us now, we can't, we, we're looking for several million new people to start to go. We can't overspend on that because we don't have an extra $50 million to, to acquire them, you know? How important is the branding or messaging around your startup or your idea in terms of getting traction? Right, because sometimes it's not even necessarily the, the tactic. If you're using a tactic and you don't have the positioning or the messaging right, it, you could still not hit that traction point. So uh, do you talk about that in the book? And especially for a company like DuckDuckGo, uh, which is a search engine, you know, most people have a de facto search engine in their mind uh, because they've been online for longer than DuckDuckGo has been around. So how do you position against that with DuckDuckGo? And then on a broader sense, how, why is the positioning of your product important in terms of achieving that traction? 
Yeah, this is a critical point. So this is probably one of the counterintuitive things we try to get across. We suggest that people start running these experiments uh, right when they start product development. The reason is is twofold. I'm going to get circle back to your messaging point. So if you consider your startup initially as a leaky bucket, so when you first start making the product, you know it's very leaky. People don't stick. Um, and you pour customers at the top and they flow out. So people think, I should not do that. I should wait until I get it all right and then I launch. Uh, the problem is, is people never do that correctly because they're too close to the problem and their beta customers are also too close. Like they're framed with the beta version and their original messaging. Um, and then when they get into the market, what generally happens is it doesn't resonate. They realize it's not sticky, it's still leaky and they have to do multiple product development cycles. So if you run traction experiments right from the beginning, um, you actually get fresh eyes on your product right away and continuously. You don't have to spend a lot of money, but you need to get continually fresh eyes. You can actually identify where the leaks are. But by doing that, you actually get, this gets to your messaging point, you get to test other things. So you get to test um, not only what channel, because you're testing different channels, what channel might work for you, but you test what messaging, you know, you test different messaging and you test different niches. And if you do this correctly, what you hone in on is what niche you should launch with out of all the eventual market, what messaging is resonating most with that niche, and then what channel to use, which is if you add those three things up, that's a credible distribution strategy. <laughs> if you do this ideally and you run traction tests right from the beginning, when you actually go to launch, you have a product that's sticky and you know what niche to focus on, you know what channel to focus on, and you know what messaging works. To actually get that to work, while you run these tests, you're, you're also testing the messaging. If you're running social ads and you're testing Facebook in there, while making several ads to test, you're testing different messaging, you're testing different targeting demographics. And as you're running these tests, you're realizing that, oh, you know, I should initially focus on young people or, you know, people in urban areas or, you know, they're responding to this part of my product or that part of my product. And that should be influencing not only the messaging, but the actual product as you're building. That, that makes a ton of sense. Did, did you find that to be uh, an effective strategy with DuckDuckGo? Did you change the product based on some of that early traction that you were getting and some of that early signups or users? Yeah, so I, when I started, so I started working on this book in 2009 after I was struggling to get traction for DuckDuckGo. <laughs> so my initial efforts were, I made a bunch of mistakes there. Um, mainly, what was the I most mentioned. painful one? Um, so there were a bunch of painful ones. I mean, one of the main mistakes I made was I didn't have this universe of channels, which most people don't start out. And what they do is they just apply what they previously knew. So my last startup, grew through viral marketing and SEO. So viral marketing is really tough in search. I didn't totally crack that. But I thought, you know, I could get SEO to work. If people go to Google and they type in new search engine, they could get to DuckDuckGo. So I, I did that, but and it worked. And I spent many months on it. But the volume just, like, did not add up. And the conversions didn't add up. And so, like, when I sat back and said, what is my goal? Like, I was never going to reach that goal. So there were, there were two mistakes there. One, I didn't even set the goal, which is like that first mistake. Secondly, I just blindly used SEO, which was never going to get there anyway. Um, but back to your other point, what I did do right was, you know, I didn't know what was going to work for DuckDuckGo. 
you know, what niche, what messaging and what anything. And, and so I immediately after launch just tried lots of different tests uh, that we're discussing now, tried different messaging, um, would, and this is also part of it, would follow up with anyone who said they were using it and tried to understand why and, you know, what would it take to get them to switch, which is our main uh, activation definition. And from that, you know, I, I learned a lot. I mean, I learned initially, as you might expect for a search engines, that the initial audience was really early adopter people who were kind of dissatisfied with one aspect of Google or not, kind of like myself. But I also came on to privacy that way as well. I mean, I was personally interested in it, but I didn't see it as something that other people were interested in until I started, you know, doing this. That makes a lot of sense. It's cool to hear about your own experience uh, using these strategies and using those to gain traction with DuckDuckGo. What was the final messaging and positioning that really uh, stuck or caught uh, to get traction? You know, it shifted over time. Starting out, you know, it was just, we're an alternative, <laughs> to be honest. You know, and, and that was the driving force is like people wanted to try out alternative and be cool and hipper. And, you know, it was kind of like the initial kind of, I was going to summarize the initial impetus. It was like the, the er, an early Google is what people said more. It was like harking back to the days when it was cleaner and simpler and they felt it was fresh, you know, and that was kind of the messaging. In the last few years, I mean, the biggest hook has been privacy, you know, that we don't track people. Um, and that really came on board strong when, when Sony came out. But it was even before that when Google started changing their privacy policies. Now it's become way more mainstream when Apple in particular has come out, you know, as that's one of their main differentiators from Google. That's been the hook in the last couple of years. That, that's helpful just as a, as a good example for people to compare their hook to with their own startup. So I, I was wondering if you might be able to talk to us a little bit more about startups that have used these strategies and, and some of the things in the book that have worked well for them. Yeah, we interviewed, you know, dozens of founders, you know, basically they're the overall process is all the same. Like the ones that we found being successful, we're doing experimentation across channels and then finding one that worked and then focusing on it. And the two non-intuitive pieces there at the end are, you know, when people try a lot of different things and they have a good product, often all those things yield some amount of traction. So like, say you try some tests and you do like trade shows and uh, some Facebook ads and, you do um, SEO. And they're all somewhat successful because you got a good product. Trade shows were really the most effective thing for you. you know? What people often do is they continue to do all three activities. And that's really, we identify as a mistake um, because the one activity is already almost by definition better because you kind of prove that through the experimentation. But, we'll, but the really non-intuitive piece is that the companies that were really successful found underutilized strategies within that channel. And the only way they can do that is by creatively testing and using their testing resources to test within that channel. So a good example of this is mint.com um, and Noah Kagan when he was in Mint. They had an initial traction goal. They had a very quantitative goal of getting 100,000 um, signups within the first six months. So he made a big spreadsheet of all these different channel ideas. And you know, picked his best ones and went and uh, tested them in small ways. 
Um, and they were in PR and targeting blogs and SEM, uh, where he's paying three channels. And he found that, you know, targeting blogs initially was their best strategy. So what he did was drop everything else, even though the other ones were somewhat successful, and then really ran tests within targeting blogs to find out if he could uncover interesting things. And they ended up coming up with two strategies that really worked for them. Uh, one was this like velvet rope strategy, which they were one of the first people to do, which is like you get early access and extra, you know, access if you invite other people and you kind of jump the line. And two, they paid personal bloggers to put ads up on their site that didn't have any advertising before. Um, so they kind of reached out and they got very cheap advertising on uh, and very high click-through rates because these blogs didn't have any ads before. And even within those strategies, they innovated to make them the most efficient. And, and they worked like perfectly well. Like they had the first 40,000 users there. And then when it maxed out, they actually ran this again and they switched over to PR. Um, but I don't think that they could have done it that well if they were trying all these different marketing activities. Like, I think it only worked because they said, we're gonna, we identify that targeting blogs could get us to the goal. We're going to focus on it and figure out how to really scale that channel. That's a helpful example. And uh, certainly a lot of entrepreneurs would like to have the kind of growth and scale that and traction that Mint had. Well, you're, Gabriel, you're there in, in Philadelphia. Uh, I'd love to kind of close off just by hearing a little bit about the startup community there. What's, what's that like there? And, uh, and why do you choose to keep your company there? I moved here in 2006. And I think this is a case for a lot of startup communities off the you know, the top three or whatever, but like lifestyle is a big reason why we moved here and it's a good place to live. It's affordable. Philly in particular, um, has a couple other attributes that make it attractive for businesses. So we're, you know, a day's drive between, you know, New York and DC in Philly in particular has lots of healthcare and other fortune 500 companies. So like essentially if you're selling a, a, a B2B company, like within a day's drive of Philly, you can hit like almost everything. This is like a lot of cities, but it is out of the bubble, like I'd say, of like New York and San Francisco. Um, and if you're building a consumer company like us, like you're just embedded in nor normalcy, if you will. You, it's, it's much easier not to believe your own hype, you know, because like everybody around you has no idea what you're doing. It's one thing I really like about it. And then also probably like other communities, it's a very small community. like. Philadelphia is a really big city, so like it's like fifth or sixth biggest in the country. We have tons of universities here and stuff like that. But the startup community feels very small in the sense that you know you can get anyone on the phone very easily. Investors are very easy to access and talk to, um, and so I, I just enjoy being part of it. That's really cool. It sounds very similar to uh, kind of here in Indianapolis uh, as well. Uh, just in the ability to get anyone on the phone, the willingness to help. And when I was in Philly, you could definitely feel that with uh, some of those startup leaders and uh, some of the entrepreneurs in the community. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to get on here and share some of your experiences growing DuckDuckGo in Philadelphia and, and beyond. Obviously, you're doing 3 billion searches a year and doing all the things in your book, Traction, to help you get to $6 billion next year. So, um, Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Gabriel. That's it for today's episode of Powder Keg Igniting Startups. Be sure to follow Gabriel at Y-E-G-G, -G, that's at 
Yeg on Twitter. Let him know what you liked about this episode. Let him know if you have follow-up questions. I know he's into giving back to founders and entrepreneurs who are in it, doing the work, growing their companies. Uh, so make sure you hit him up. Check out his website, duckduckgo.com. Amazing search engine, gives you powerful results without all of the, the weird kind of tracking that Google and Yahoo do. So if you like that, definitely check out DuckDuckGo. You can get the full show notes and transcript on our website, powderkeg.co. That's powderkeg.co. And just a little reminder that Powderkeg is presented by Verge, a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent growing companies beyond Silicon Valley. We've got a ton of free resources for starting or growing your business on our website at vergehq.com. We also host several events every month all around the country and actually worldwide now. So check us out, see where we are. Maybe we can link up in person. So again, that's vergehq.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter there for free to get updates on where we're going to be and some of the cool new resources that we're releasing literally every week right now. You can also always find me on Twitter. I'm just at Hunkler, and that's at H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. I appreciate all of the feedback that you've been giving me, all the kind words, as well as constructive criticism. Always open to that as well. Let me know how I can help you or your business or how we can make this podcast better for you. I just want to say thanks before we close everything out. I want to say thank you to everyone who has helped share this podcast with other friends, family members, or coworkers. Uh, and thanks to everyone who has left us a review this past week and subscribed on iTunes. Just want to give a quick shout out to users Ryan Carmen and JB Rapp, who recently left us thoughtful five-star reviews. You can leave us your honest review by using this link, powderkeg.co slash iTunes. You can give us a subscribe while you're at it and we'll be forever indebted to you because it's your reviews, your subscriptions, and the feedback that help us get better and reach more people. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We've got some crazy, awesome guests like Jay Bear from Convince and Convert, Kara Nortman from Upfront Ventures, Brian Clark from Copyblogger, all coming up soon on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. <laughs>